Okay, good. We're in. Well, I'm looking forward to today's message. Uh, I know that many of you went over this passage, these verses, uh, maybe two, three weeks ago when I was going to a general conference. And you did a Berean with uh, Stuart. So if I, what I read sounded familiar, it's because you've already gone through this. So it would be fun for us to do this, just to see uh, kind of uh, where we both ended up in terms of our observations and lessons and applications. And, and um, yeah, I'll just be very curious to see if we come in together in alignment. And knowing our church, I'm pretty confident that we arrive at the same place. There might be a couple nuances and a little bit extra information that I might provide because I might go outside of the text, but I'm uh, pretty confident that we're going to end up in the exact same place. So let's just look at the context of what's happening here, just to remember where we're at in John. Um, remember this conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples occurs on the night of the Last Supper. This is him privately in a room with uh, 11 guys now, because Judas has left, and this is on the night of the Passover. And his death now is only a few hours away. Jesus is about to be crucified, and he's going to leave and depart from his disciples. And this departure is going to put these men in a faith crisis. And they'd signed up, as you know, to follow a conquering Messiah, a Jesus that was going to liberate them from Rome and, and free Israel. And here now Jesus was telling them he was going to suffer. And when he was eventually going to be crucified again, they were going to go into hiding because they, they couldn't believe what happened to their Jesus. But knowing that uh, this crisis was coming and that these guys are going to be in a bit of a, uh, a quandary with their faith, uh, Jesus, and throughout this chapter, the chapter 4, was giving them words of reassurance uh, words of hope. He gave them a series of promises that they could trust in. Uh, promises such as that he was, this was not going to be the end for him. They were going to see him again one day. Uh, he was going to prepare a place for them in heaven. Uh, he was going to bring them the Holy Spirit. He would take his place and teach them as he had already taught them. And he was going to give them confidence that if they prayed in his name for anything they desired, that he would answer those prayers. So all these promises were theirs, and all they had to do was to continue to remain and abide in Him to receive those promises. And the way for them to receive those promises and to continue, continue to abide from His point of view was all they had to do was to obey His commands. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in His love. Now one of the key commandments that Jesus wanted them to keep as followers was how they loved one another. How they loved one another. And we pick this up actually in the beginning of the passage and at the end. Look at verse 12 and 17. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Look at the following verse in 17. This is my commandment that you love one another. So the two bookends on either side of this passage is love one another, love one another, and everything in between is what we're going to discover today. So there's three particular observations I want to make from what made Jesus' love unique. His command to love one another was unique in three ways. The first way that it was unique was that it was to be a love that was modeled after him. You see that in verse 12. You love one another as I have loved you. The, the disciples were not to love one another as the culture around them defined it. They were not to love one another as their family of origin had taught them. They were not to love one another as the Pharisees and religious leaders had taught them. They were to love one another as if it, as Jesus had taught them, one that was modeled after him. And what was the essence of Jesus' love? Self-sacrifice, with no expectation of return. Self-sacrifice, with no expectation of return. 
He didn't need reciprocation of love back in order to give love to others. Now, ultimately, he expressed this through the cross. This is why in verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, than one laid down his life for his friends. So, this is an expression of Jesus saying, this is the ultimate expression of the way one would love, is to, for, for, to lay down your life for your friends. And this is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. But what's interesting about this in verse 12, is that the cross hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. And yet Jesus has already said to the disciples, I want you to love as I have loved you, past tense. That means the disciples would be able to, if let's say the cross didn't even happen, at this point in their lives, they would have been able to express love the way God, for one another, the way Jesus desired, based on how he had treated them in the past for the last three years. And that's, I think, a very significant observation because we always define, how does Jesus love you? He died for you, he died for you. Yeah, but what about the disciples? He hadn't died for them yet, and he says, you can still model my love that I haven't even died yet. I think that's an important observation. So how did he do it with these guys? Well, he taught them patience. Taught them patience. I mean, uh, these guys were arrogant, failed over and over to grasp his teaching. They're very slow learners. But when he would deal with them, he'd deal with them in patience. Not likely we would. If we're dealing with people who are arrogant and who fail to grasp concepts and over and over, we want to tell them right away they need to shape up or ship out, right? He was kind to them, even in times when they deserved to have a, a strip torn off of them. Like when he wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans and they were kind of racist towards these guys because they were Jews, they were better than them. And he's like, let's kill them all. I'll call down fire and kill them all. And he didn't flip out. He was kind to them in his response. He exercised self-control in his response. He was gentle with them. He put their interests above his own. No, nothing greater than the model of washing their feet. They all walk in. He taught them servanthood. Nobody takes the form or role of a slave in the church or in the, at the supper. Nobody gets up, washes their feet, and Jesus gets up and washes their feet. He put their interests above his own. And Jesus kept no records of wrongs. He forgave without limit. Father, forgive them when he was being crucified. That's what he said. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And with the disciples, he forgave Peter after his denial three times. It was this kind of love that disciples were to model. This kind of love that was selfless with no expectation of reciprocation. And that's the kind of love we are to model as well. Now this is hard for us because we're wired to always want justice. Whenever someone does anything against you, I don't, even if it's your kid, or your, or, your, or your spouse, or a close friend, the, your immediate response is, I want them to pay for what they did to me. <laughs> right? That's the immediate response. That's what the flesh wants. And um, we are wired to want to punish, and we want to be right all the time. But that's the kind of love that the world has to offer. It demands reciprocation. And Jesus says, no, 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 I want you to love self-sacrificially as modeled like I did. The second observation I want to make from here is that love is to be exercised primarily within the community of believers. This is interesting. He says, I want you, this is my commandment, that you love one another. What's the context? There's no Jewish mob. There's no Pharisaic leaders. There's no Gentile audience. He's speaking to people who have already committed their lives to him. His 11 disciples. And he says, I want this community of love, this love to exist within the community of believers. It has to exist there primarily first. Now I think in general, um, 
and uh, I'm not disagreeing with this, because we're going to do it as well as a church, but we often as a church, I think, get caught up in being so focused on loving those outside the church that we neglect our own. We get so focused on external things outside the church that we forget the wills within our own church. And Jesus' command here is that we focus internally first. And I won't get into them now. We can do it in discussion. But there are warnings in the Bible, in the New Testament, about us failing to take care of one another. That's another sermon. But there's numerous warnings of Christians who fail to take care of one another that they're in danger with God. It's a very substantial uh, thing that he's bringing up here. So we need to love within the community first. Now, why would that be? Well, Jesus doesn't answer it here, but we've looked at this before, and I want just to quickly remind you. Look at 1335. 1335. Why would Jesus want the love to exist primarily within the community? He says this, by, um, uh, well, go start at 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even, if I have, even as I have loved you, that you would love one another. Now, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. What's the purpose of the love existing in the, within the community? It's evangelistic. It's a testimony to the outside world. By this, all men that you will know that you are my disciples. <clears throat> this, op, the way we treat one another within this community, within Genesis House, is actually a testimony to the outside world and a tremendous witness. I mean, I'm so grateful for the testimonies last week for many reasons, but... One of them was Laurel's testimony that she spoke about. This is exactly why her initially and then Pat came to faith. Remember her testimony? She said we were struggling and we were going through some hard times in this community and there was a bunch of people within this whole neighborhood was basically this community of Christians and they would all do things together, take care of one another, would love one another. And we used to think, who are these people that believe they can hear from God and talk to God? Right? And then after a while, they then poured that, with the way they treated each other, then impacted them, and then they poured that love, love onto them. And Laurel and Pat wanted to be part of something that they didn't have outside of that community. So again, it's interesting that Jesus says in 1335, by this, all men will know you're my disciples, and that's exactly how the Jesus came to faith. By watching the community of believers in Salmon Arm. Now, I know some of you have uh, heard Glenn Nutt from RMCC uh, preach, and he's a great preacher and a great pastor, and he, uh, um, he said this at one time, and I really like what he said, and he said this, because, because our greatest witness to the world is how we love one another within our church, that's the reason why Satan wants to take out our church. The reason why Satan wants to take us out and cause disunity in our church is because he knows if he gets us infighting, we won't be any use to the world on the outside. He wants to sow seeds of bitterness in us. He wants to create division in us. He wants to create disunity in us. And he loves it when the church fights within because they'll self-destruct. Destruct. So our, often our biggest battle isn't coming from outside the church walls. It's coming from within our church walls. And those of us, we've all experienced this in, in church community and how it destroys, destroys unity and destroys the ability for us to love one another. So that means we all have on a daily basis and as a community have to form our own internal rebellion against Satan. Because what Satan does is this. He wants you to fight with your wife. He wants you to fight with your husband. 
He wants you to be terrible with your children. He wants you to hold grudges against one another. Because if he can sow seeds of bitterness in you and make you uh, arrogant and proud and, and unforgiving, he's starting to destroy our community so we have no voice to the outside world. So how we treat one another within this church matters. How we deal with our marriages, how we deal with our kids, how we take care of each other when we're in need, those things matter. And my personal desire for our church is that we love one another within our community so greatly that our witness speaks loud and clear to our friends and to our family and our co-workers and the outside world, the unbelievers. And so that they ask the question that Jensen's asked, who in the world is their source of strength? What in the world is going on amongst those people they can actually overcome certain pains and obstacles like we, that we can't? I, that's the goal that I would like to see our church arrive at. And I think we have in many ways, but we've always got more work to do. So, but, but just be, be, just think about that though, that your testimony, the way you deal with one another within the, these walls matters to the outside world. So if you ever need any, um, um, let's say you're having an uh, opportunity or something's been planted in you where you want to hold bitterness or grudges, it's, you start to get inwardly focused about that person, you make them their focus. Maybe a convicting word that you can remember from this sermon that the Holy Spirit can use in the future <laughs> is that, hey, wait a minute, let's forget my own personal desire for justice here. I gotta, we have to uphold as Genesis House a relationship and a, and a witness to the rest of the community. So I need to reconcile for the greater good of the church. The third application or third observation I want to make from this uh, love that Jesus is asking for us is that this love was not optional. It was a command. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment. Right? It's not an option for you. It's not an option for me. It's not like I'm like choosing between apple juice and orange juice and I get to pick which one I like more. He's saying, if you want to be a follower of mine, I'm commanding you that you love one another. You don't have an option here. He didn't say, well, you know what? I'll tell you what, guys, uh, disciples. I know that uh, some of you, like I know like, uh, you know, Nathaniel, he's got some idiosyncrasies. He's got some idiosyncrasies and like, you know, uh, Levi, the tax collector, he's got some weird social like norms about him. And uh, I know, John, that you just don't really want to like, like him right now because he's totally different than you in personality. I mean, he just rubs, every time you talk to him, he rubs you the wrong way. So you know what? You're forgiven for loving him. You can just actually <clears throat> ignore him and just uh, continue to function with me in this inner group of 12. He didn't do that. He says, I don't care about their idiosyncrasies, if they're weird, if they have different social norms and preferences in you. You are to love one another as I have loved you, as I've modeled after you. And oh man, oh man, if I were to ask you, do you love everything about each one of us in this church? <laughs> I bet you when we hang out with one another, we never drive each other crazy, and we never have anything that we actually prefer, we'd like to change about someone else in our life. If they were only like you, and they're only like me, this church would be so much better, right? Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, as a follower of Jesus, this was not an option. And the reason was is because of the way he ultimately expressed his love for them and for us in verse 15, or sorry, 13. He says, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. Now, of course, at the time Jesus made the statement, his disciples had no idea what was about to happen to him. And they had no idea that ultimately his big, biggest act of self-sacrificial love towards them was still yet to come. And he was going to die on a cross as a substitute 
for their sins so that it could be accepted by God. But even though they did not understand this at the time, it was an act of love that later on in the future they were going to be able to look on uh, and look back on with unbelievable gratitude and thankfulness for what he did for them. Now what Jesus was asking of them was not going to be easy. It was going to be hard at times to love each other the way he had modeled after them. But it wasn't going to come without tremendous blessing either. It was going to be a blessing if they followed through on this. And it was a blessing that he'd already bestowed on them and was going to continue to bestow on them in the future if they continued on in obedience to him. And that was one of friendship. Look at 14 and 15. He says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all the things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Before we get into these two verses, I want to make a clarifying statement. Right away, when I use, when I use the word slave, in the slave and friend, automatically you've already come up with a definition in your head of what slave and friend means. And if I was to guess, you'd probably put slave in the negative category and friend in the positive category. And I'm sure people could read this and go all sorts of places uh, theologically with what that means. But let me just, first of all, make the clarifying statement that slave and friend here has nothing to do with negative and positive in terms of that you're standing before God in terms of salvation. Slave and friend in this context are both used as describing followers of Jesus. Look at verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I can... Sorry, verse 15. No longer do I call you slaves, but now I call you friends. So no longer do I call you slaves. It's not that they... they see, initially, when they first became followers... They were in the slave category, but three years later, now they're in the friend category. So slave and friendship has nothing to do with being a follower of Jesus here. It has to do with maturity and, and well, actually, that's not true. Well, it kind of is. It has to do with two things. There's two components to being a friend. The first one is found in 14. You are a friend of Jesus if you're willing to obey all his commandments. And in verse 15, you're a friend depending on how much you know about God's way. Right? He says, I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And you're my friends if you do what I command you. The two components to being a friend of Jesus is knowing, obeying his commandments and, and how much you know about God's way. And I want to show you a, a little graph here. Laura did this for me. And she did a good job. Unfortunately, when I transported it into here, it's too small to see for many of you in the back. I'll explain this vertical axis says here uh, the mind of God or basically Jesus' teachings which is verse 15 and it goes kind of from 0 to 100 and then in the bottom left hand corner is the word slave on the x axis as my wife informed me the x axis has the word slave and over here has the word friend so the y axis says basically knowledge of Jesus' teachings and then you have slave on the left and friend on the right you notice this line going on a 45 degree the more you start to embrace and know of the words of Jesus, the closer you move to the friendship line. But the word, but slave there is still, being, is still in relationship with Jesus. That's why he says, I don't call you slaves any longer. You're moved now after three years to a friendship place. Okay? So those are the two components to being a friend. Being willing to obey the commandments and, know, and knowing how much you know of God's way and how to apply it to your life. So we learn two things from Jesus here then. First of all, that friendship is not possible unless, unless one is willing to obey the commandments of Christ. You can't be a friend unless you're willing to walk in his ways. 
See, friendship is not determined by your intellect. It's not how smart you are or how much you know about the Bible. It's not depending on your emotional state. So you can't will or wish or cry yourself into a closer relationship with Jesus. You can't do any rituals to become his friend. You can't, you can't, like there's nothing you can offer him in terms of rituals. All he asks of you is obedience. But here's the thing. If obedience requires trust on our part. And, I, and Jesus recognized that trust would be your and my issue. Here's why. Look at the if in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. In other words, friendship is conditional upon your obedience to me. Which means if it's conditional, Jesus knows there's an option for you. You can either go his way or not his way. He recognizes that. He recognizes that trusting him is going to come with a, with a, with a responsibility placed on you to follow through. And me to follow through. It's very interesting in that. And depending on our backgrounds, right? Depending on our backgrounds and the places we've come from and, and all sorts of reasons, uh, we sometimes are slow to trust in certain areas of life and sometimes we're quick. And I know in my own life and as I've talked to many of you, we all struggle with trusting Christ in different areas of our life. Right? If, I, you know, if it's forgiveness, some of us are quick to trust and trusting His way for forgiveness. Some of us aren't. Some of us are quick financially to go His way. Some of us are not. Some of us are quick in our marriages to go His way. Some of us are not. Some of us are quick to discipline our kids and raise our kids the way God wants. Some of us are not. Right? All of us have our trust issues with the Lord. And so, but God, He's given us His commands and we know He's trustworthy because He, he laid down His life for His friends. If you can trust a God who's willing to die for you before you love them back first. But everything in our mind, and Satan's job too, is to make us not trust the Lord. So he did in the garden. Did God really say you can trust him? He's not trustworthy. He just wants to hold the best from you. And so you go into life and you're thinking the same thing as Eve. I don't think God's trustworthy in this. I think I know better. And unfortunately, we always learn eat the fruit of our own way when we do that. And I'm no different, so um, I got my areas too. But, I mean, when you read these passages here, you, we know that uh, we, can, we can trust them. And, and obedience to commands is placed on us, whether we're willing to follow through. The second thing about uh, being a friend of Jesus is, is, is moving from a slave to a friendship position. has to do with our knowledge of, and, and embracing of Jesus' way. Right? He says in verse uh, 15, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. What we learn here when we look at this graph, and, we, and I just say these words, is we can see that our walk with the Lord, moving from slave to friendship, is a process. It's a process. You initially save uh, and you, in a slave and you become a slave of Christ, but, but, and you live this life, Christian life out until the day you breathe your last breath. And that's a process of maturity. And it's actually in the Bible, if you've never heard this word before, it's a word called sanctification. It means to be set apart, to be made holy. And sanctification is the process of maturity that we, that we have to um, adhere to and we want to, to want to live out. Now it's interesting for the disciples that this process of sanctification and process from slave to friend took three years. Interesting, right? So when they first met Jesus, they, were, they became slaves of Jesus. They had very little knowledge about him. 
They didn't know who he was as the Messiah. They had an idea from the Old Testament scriptures, but they had a preconceived notion of what he was going to be and how he's going to fulfill their lives and what kind of leader he was going to be. They didn't, if you were to ask the disciples on day, week one of following Jesus, uh, what's Jesus' take on divorce? I don't know. What's Jesus' take on repentance? I don't know. What's he say about marriage? I don't know. What's he say about adultery? Don't know. What's he say about money? I have no idea. How do you get right with God? I don't know. I haven't heard the guy. Right? You see what I'm saying? Now ask the men after three years, what did Jesus teach on these subjects? They go bang, 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 bang. Right? They took him three, Jesus thought it's going to take three years to take you guys from, from a slave to friend. Slave to friend. And after the three years, the disciples had received everything required to live out the Christian life and being able to teach others to do the same in the future as leaders of the church. Now, how did he do this? How did he do this? Notice what he didn't do. This is what he did not do. Uh, boys, um, there's a meeting on Saturday. It's called the syn- it's at the synagogue. And I'm going to be there once a week on Saturday from 11 to 12.15. Show up there and I'm going to teach you how to be a disciple of mine and how to go- reach friendship. And I'll see you once a week and have fun six days a week on your own. That's the model, sadly, of uh, a lot of churches in North America. One hour a week. Don't interrupt my schedule in my life. Just get it over with. And have no other investment of time with Christ outside of that one hour a week. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't do a six-week program on discipleship. Meet me for, from June 1st till July 15th. And we're going to do six weeks on how to do, be this, how to do that, do this. He did it through a relational investment. A relational investment where he spent huge amounts of time with, with his life into somebody else's. Now this really intrigued me. And I thought to myself, man, if it took only three years for them to move from slave to friendship, is there, could I, what would it take for me to move from slave to friendship? Like, what would it take in my life? And those of you will probably enjoy this. I actually calculated how much time Jesus probably spent with the disciples in terms of hours. And I'm being very um, conservative here. I just pretended they had a 40-hour work week. So they, they spent eight hours a day with Jesus, five days a week, and took the weekends off, which we know they didn't, and they didn't spend eight hours. They were with them sometimes 24 hours, but just work with me here. 40 hours a week times 52 weeks a year times three years was 6,240 hours. Now, truthfully, that's probably more like 10,000 hours immersed in the teachings of Jesus. So what I did for fun, I thought I took the 600... The 6,240 hours, I thought, what if I were to spend one hour a day with Christ? How long would it take me to get to 6,000 hours? 17 years <laughs> on one hour a day. Now, this is not to call anybody out, but most of, some of you in here don't even read the scriptures one hour per week. One hour per week. Okay? So, you're basically going to die, like, somewhere in the bottom half of that graph. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. You're still in the slave position, but friendship's an impossibility. Okay? <laughs> but in terms of that status, you're still loved by the Lord. You're still loving the Lord. I mean, you're still... A slave is still good, right? slave is still good. But it's not to the point where Jesus would actually desire for you to be and for me to be. That's very fascinating. I think it's one hour per day, 17 years. Right? 
But I was thinking about this more and more. The point of this is not to discourage you or discourage me. Don't evaluate yourself on this graph and go, I must be a big failure. That's not the point of this. That's not the point of this. And let me, let me, uh, let me give you an illustration that I was thinking about why, what I think the point of this is. Is, is that, uh, you know, we're, when we were in Drumheller on Friday, it was a beautiful hot day. And I kind of went there. It was pretty white and pale. I haven't been on the sun very much. I'm still kind of white and pale compared to some of you. But I got home after the day, after the day, and I noticed that after a few hours in the day that I actually had some color in my face from the being in the sun for like two, three hours. And as I looked at that, I thought, man, actually, getting a suntan is the same as becoming a friend of Jesus. Getting a suntan is the same as a friend of Jesus. See, when you, in order to get a tan, you need to be exposed and have time in the sun. The amount of exposure and time in the sun gives you a better tan. The amount, to be a friend, the amount of time and exposure you have in the sun will make you a better friend. Right? Yeah. Time in the sun gives you a tan. Time in the sun or with the sun can make you a friend. And that's the thing. All we're looking, all he's looking for, and what we want to accomplish in our lives is this relational, this relational time with the Lord, where we are moving from slave to friendship on this constant continuum called the Christian life. Again, so don't look at this as a potential for frustration. Like, I'm never going to get there. Oh, poor me. I, I'm like, I'm terrible kind of thing. That's not the point. You're still in good standing as a slave of God. But the point is to pursue your friendship with the Lord as a love expression to Him. Spend time learning about His thoughts in the mind of Jesus. And then obey His commandments in your walk with Christ as you move towards friendship. Now these disciples were clearly privileged men, as who else in Israel had been able to sit under the teachings of Jesus for three years outside of them? But Jesus also knew with great privilege came great responsibility. And their faith was not to be kept private. It was to be shared. And you see this in verse 16. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go bear fruit. And yet your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he may give to you. Remember this choosing of the disciples occurred after he spent all night on the mountain praying three years prior. And after he came down, he had multitudes to choose from in terms of who he could have picked, but he chose 12 specific men. But this choosing was not to form a little private club wasn't to have this little small church community that stuck to themselves where they had secret handshakes and, and received some kind of special knowledge that wasn't to be shared. This choosing had evangelistic purposes. He says here, I've chosen you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and so that your fruit would remain. You see, the disciples were to act as Jesus' ambassadors represent him in the future and pass on all his teachings and commands to all those who are going to commit their lives to them from that day forward. They were to be partners with Jesus in the, in the furthering of the gospel. Now it's interesting that Jesus says, let your, I hope that your, well, he says, let your fruit remain. Did you know that you and I are actually recipients and, and are blessed because their fruit did remain? Do you know why you believe why you, what you believe? Do you know why the gospel exists the way it does? Do you know why the gospel is in North America and not still in Israel? 
because the apostles were faithful to Jesus' commands to go bear fruit. They spread, like they, they spread the message in Jerusalem, and then these men, that when the, after persecution of the church, it went all over the world, and then Paul became saved and went all over the world. We are recipients of the scriptures because of the work and the fruit that the God, the, the, and the obedience of the apostles to Jesus Christ. Also, as a church, the reason why we function the way we do here, the, what, the reason we believe what we believe and teach what we believe, is founded on the apostolic teaching. You never hear me say, like the guy, poor guy in Drumheller says, well, I think, I think, I think. I don't say, I mean, if I do, it's only in, maybe in application, but not in principle. Uh, I mean, I do my best to only present you the apostolic teachings that are, that are written in Scripture. And I don't like some of the teaching there. Man, it's, I don't want to live out some of the things they ask us to do as a church. But we do them because, um, because of our love for Christ. And they ultimately were taught by Christ. So Genesis House functions because the apost- the, these, these apostles that Jesus appointed to go bear, bear fruit actually bore fruit. And then their fruit remained. And we are recipients of that grace. But just like the disciples were given te- teachings in order to bear fruit, so are we. We are to take the, the, the teachings of Christ, the commandments of Christ, and all that he's done for us, and not to be silent. We are not to be private in our faith. We are to express, our, express it in our lives by the way we live and the way we talk. And I just pray for us that we become bolder and bolder in our witness um, in the world, especially in Okotoks, and that we're more and more committed as a church to obeying and trusting the Lord's commands, whatever those areas may be. So there's some lessons I want you to take away from here. And uh, this is the first one. And we've been through this before, so this is very quick and not new to you. But the essence of the Christian love is self-sacrifice. Jesus says, I want you to love as I have loved you. The essence of Christian life is self-sacrifice. Easy to understand in concept, hard to live out at times. One motivating factor is to remember what Jesus did for us. When we don't want to live, be self-sacrificial, remember what Jesus said in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus, uh, he laid down his life on the cross in order that we may become uh, uh, accepted by God. He didn't gain anything by dying, uh, dying for us. Didn't gain anything initially by dying for us. So we can remember that if he can do that for us, that we can do that for others as well. Second lesson. It's imperative that we love one another within our community, Christian community, as a testimony to the unbelieving world. It's imperative that we love one another within our community as a testimony to the unbelieving world. Again, um, I mean, I said quite a bit about that in the sermon, but just to highlight the points again, the, the Satan loves when we have infighting and backbiting and bitterness. And I think that's also why Paul was so strong with the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was the most gifted spiritual church in the whole New Testament. Nobody had more spiritual gifts than the Corinthian church. But the one thing they did not have was love. They did not love one another. There's factions, divisions, fighting, difference between elite and the poor in the church. And Paul said, if you continue, you're going to end up like Israel in the desert. He used 1 Corinthians 10 as a warning to Corinth to, to get back to the priority of loving one another. So we can, have, we can be the most gifted evangelist or gifted church like in, in terms of spiritual gifts in the world. If we don't know how to love one another, it means absolutely nothing. In fact, I love uh, 
Paul's comments. He says, you're like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I mean, if you, you know, if you walked up to you with a cymbal and went like this all day for 45 minutes in the church, like, stop. And Jesus is saying, all your spiritual gifts are like nothing to me unless you know how to love one another. The third lesson. Uh, becoming a friend of Jesus is conditional upon our obedience to his commands. Verse 14. Uh, this is really interesting. Uh, I used to get caught in this a, a long time ago, but I don't get caught anymore on this conversation. I'd be talking with non-believers about you know, Christianity and the church and so on, and I'd often get this comment. I don't like going to church. I actually quit. Why? I just think the church is so full of hypocrisy. There's so many people out there that they claim they love God, and then they go and do another thing, and they claim this, and then they live contrary to the to the, what you guys teach. And I just, I, why would I want to be part of a community like that? There, like you call that Christianity? I used to be stuck for work, like as like, because I didn't know what to say. But now what I say to people is this: You know what? I, I know someone else who's in fully agreement with you. His name is Jesus Christ. What do you mean? Well, Jesus Christ doesn't call those people Christians either. People who live hypocritical lives as a pattern in their life. Not one in a, once in a while. People who live in a life of hypocrisy as evidenced by their willing to obey the commands of Jesus or not. Jesus says, I don't know who you are. So I said, actually, Jesus Christ actually agrees with you. He's in full agreement with you. So I never apologize when the people are offended that the church was hypocritical. If they've been hurt by people like that, I don't apologize for them. I actually agree with them and then tell them what Jesus is actually looking for. Tell them what he's looking for. A, a, you know, obedience out of a love as a love expression for what he did for us. Now again, if we back to another point, if it's conditional upon our obedience, uh, whether we're friends of Christ or not, that's going to require trust. It's going to require trust in our part, and only only we have to work through the pains of our past that might impact our willingness to trust Him in certain areas of our lives. Fourth lesson, uh, becoming a friend of Jesus requires that we fully immerse ourselves in the teachings of Jesus. And I just put that on brackets, the scriptures. You know, memorizing the Bible from cover to cover, if you could recite the whole thing, that's not enough necessarily as well to becoming a friend. And even reading the entire Bible in one year may not be enough to become a friend. And the reason is, is because the Pharisees would have cleaned all of our clocks in the Old Testament. None of us could do better than them. So clearly, immersing yourself is memorization and reading and things is part of it, but it's not the full picture of what God's looking for. We have to immerse ourselves in a way that we learn how to live it out. You, immer you, you study the scriptures so you learn how to obey the scriptures. It's evidenced by the way you live. So the purpose of reading and studying and memorizing is so that we learn the implications and applications for our lives. We have to be able to bear fruit out of the studies and readings that we do. And you know what our biggest, our biggest obstacle, I think, is in our culture? I'm, spe I'm speaking specifically of Okotoks. Our biggest hindrance in spending time where we immerse ourselves in the scriptures is our desire for recreation and leisure. It's our desire for recreation and leisure. I'm not saying recreation and leisure is wrong, but it is the trump card when it comes to our spiritual growth. <coughs> we are, as a culture, extremely busy in sports. We're extremely busy in all the recreational activities we can have and our pleasures of life. And that is what's hindering us, my opinion anyway, and you can debate me if you like in that in the, the dialogue, but that is our number one issue. We want to just live 
our, we want to create heaven on earth here and now for ourselves and our children. And it's the number one stumbling block to our, our immersing ourselves in the Word of God. Number five in the final lesson. Becoming a friend of Jesus is a process. That, word, that process in the scriptures is called sanctification. And it's not a one-time event. So becoming a friend of Christ is a process, not a one-time event. Again, today was not meant to frustrate you or, or, uh, by looking at that graph and going, I'm never going to become a friend of Christ to the way that disciples were. Uh, neither am I, by the way, because I just, I, and, uh, I'm just not going to understand what they did to the, ever to the degree that they did. But it doesn't mean that I'm not moving towards friendship with Christ. So it's not, again, not meant to be showing you how far you have to go. At the same time, it's not a call to be lackadaisical and just being happy with being in an initial slave position either. Right? We don't want to take God's grace for granted. And what's interesting to finish off is that this sanctification, this process to maturity is actually God's will for your life. I have lots of conversations with people. Well, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for your life? And what do you usually get? What they mean by what's God's will is what job does he want me to take? What person does he want me to marry? Um, what house am I supposed to buy? Uh, what car should I drive? You know, these are the kind of things. That, what's God's will for my life in those categories? God's will for your life is that you be sanctified that you, you be mature in your walk. That's his will. Look at First Thessalonians. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you, as, as you receive instruction from us about how you must live and please God, that you do so more and more. For you know what commands we gave you through our Lord Jesus. For this is God's will, your sanctification. So whenever I have a conversation with anybody in the church and say, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? I said, I can tell you what it is. He wants you to be sanctified. What does that mean? He wants you to be set apart for His work. What does that mean? He wants you to obey His commands and bear fruit and, be, and share that with the world and love one another from the church community. Oh, well, that's kind of boring compared to what else I was going to get. Yeah, but that's His will. That's in the Scripture. He cares about your character. He cares about your character. He cares about my character and how we live. It's a testimony to the world who's watching our church and our lives.